Well, good morning and welcome this morning to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful that you've joined us this morning. Well, welcome, welcome to 2024. I think this is the first time we've met uh, as a church, and at least gathering on Sunday uh, in 2024. You know, the turn of the years, the turn of the years always gives us an opportunity to reflect upon the past and to look forward to the future, look forward to the future. 2024 uh, happens to be, for, the, for us in the United States, happens to be a, an election year, right? And so there seems to be an even greater potential for change in our immediate, immediate future. Here at Grace Bible Church, we have, the added, we have an added milestone this year in January. We planted this church seven years ago this month. Uh, the number seven, as you might know, is, was a sacred number among the, the, the ancient Hebrew people. Uh, the word is used in the Bible to symbolize perfection, fullness, abundance, rest, and completion. We see this significance in the creation account in Genesis, the first book of the canon. Uh, scripture teaches that God created the world and, and, and all it contains in six days. But, but in Genesis 2, 1-4, we find that when the heavens and the earth were completed in the sixth day, that on the seventh day God completed His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work He had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because He rested from all the work which He had done, or he had, which God had created in making it. So, you see the significance even beginning in Genesis. And in John's vision in Revelation, the last book of the canon, we saw, John saw seven stars in the Lord's right hand, and there were seven lampstands representing the seven churches in Asia Minor. We saw that even this morning in our hermeneutics equipping class. But in both cases, there is an idea of completeness and fullness in seven, the, the number seven. We see that clearly in the creation account, uh, but we also see it in the churches in Revelation. The churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor represented all the churches throughout the church age, so it represents the completeness of the church age. Now, I don't want to make too much of our seventh anniversary, but in some ways, and some ways it is just another year, but it does give us an opportunity to reflect and look forward. I hope you will indulge me this morning a few moments of reflection. We all have memories of the past, do we not? Uh, three or four of you, actually, uh, I was thinking of Rick and, and Miss Helene and my wife and, and Kayla, uh, all go back, all the way back to the beginning of, of GBC. Some of you have been, been here for a few years. Uh, some, of, some, some have seen, or most of us have seen folks come and uh, dear, dear saints come and, and, and some go, right? We've had joyful times and we've had some sad and frustrating times as a church. But memories are a funny thing, are they not? We tend to look back at memories, we tend to look back at the past and we romanticize the past, right? Or we look back on past events through painful tears. We romanticize the past because we don't want to remember the pain and suffering. We, we don't want to remember it. Or some of us can fixate on painful history because we become embittered about the pain and suffering. And I don't think either is fruitful, beloved. I don't think either way we shouldn't look at the past and romanticize it and we shouldn't look at the past and become embittered about it. I believe there's a more fruitful way to look back, and, and I, want you, I want to show you that. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. 
I told you that you're going to have to bear with me this morning because this is going to be a little different. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a model for reflecting on our history. In Philippians 3, 1 through 6, Paul told the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord, especially when difficulties arise. He encouraged them to boast in Christ Jesus and, and warned them not to put confidence in the flesh. He recounted his own past fleshly accomplishments, saying that if anyone could be confident in the flesh, it was him. And in seven, 3, 7, and 8, he says this, But whatever things were gained, were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that... I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In other words, every fleshly pursuit and conquest was rubbish to him because of the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus. His life in Christ was far greater than any fleshly accomplishment. His next words in Philippians 3.9 are some of the greatest doctrine ever taught by, about the righteousness imputed to us by God through faith. I want you to pick up, <clears throat> though, in 3.10. He says this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. You see, Paul's desire was to follow Christ in every way, in suffering and in death. And he does this according to Philippians 3.11. He says this, In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says this, Not that I've already obtained it. That would be the resurrection of the dead is how I take that. Or I've already become perfect. So, you know, being glorified when that happens. But he says this, I press on so that I may... lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So here's the tension for Paul and for every serious believer in the Lord Jesus. We recognize the glories of Christ. We recognize the glories that that await us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Yet, you and I, We live in the here and now, do we not? We live on earth, not in the heavenly places. We live in a place of hurt. We live in a place of struggle. We live in a place of great pain. We live in a sinful flesh that needs sanctification. Paul says he presses on. You see, Paul pursues his sanctification aggressively, like a runner pressing on toward the prize at the finish line. Now look at verse 13, Philippians 3.13. He says, brothers, not, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. You see, Paul is acknowledging the tension of living now in this sinful, sin-fallen world, in, the sin, in his sin flesh. He hasn't finished the race, he is still here struggling, and he recognizes and he agonizes over his sinful condition. He recognizes that there is absolutely no perfection on this side of glory. Yet, we must strive for it. 
We must strive for sanctification. We must never be passive. But look at the last part of verse 13. Paul tells us how he does that. He says this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, church, we can't change the past, right? You can't change it, whether it be your personal past or whether it be a corporate past. We can't change the past, but we, we can reflect upon it. We can learn from it, but we can't change it. When Paul says that he forgets what he lies behind, what lies behind him, I don't take that to mean that he has forced amnesia, that, that, it, that it's a forced forgetting, right? I think he's saying that the past cannot be changed and it has no bearing on the present race or the future prize. As a runner bears down on the finish line, he doesn't dare look back because that slows him down and takes his eye off of what? Prize, right? The goal, the end, the end goal. Look at 3.14. Here's Paul's answer. So beautiful. So beautiful. He says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think my wife could get up here and give you the hand signs. Right? Is that, you said you'd do that, right? <laughs> it's your foot. That's what it is. Okay. But Paul wants us to understand that in one very real sense, the past is not important. We need to make the maximum effort today towards the prize, our glorious future with Jesus. And we do that by pressing on toward the prize like a runner lunging toward the finish line. In the words of John MacArthur, Paul made a break with everything in his past, both good and bad. Religious achievements, virtuous deeds, great successes in ministry, as well as sins, uh, missed opportunities and disasters must all be forgotten. They do not control the, neither the present, today, or the future. Believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by the guilt of past sins. End quote. Now we can apply that individually, Right? I mean, that's individually we can apply that, but we can also apply that as a church, corporately. And we, church, we all have suffering and trials in our past, and we all have great victories as well. Uh, churches are, are literally chocked full of bitter people who can't let go of the past. The spiritually handicapped who hold grudges and cannot move forward because of past sins and failures. They focus on what could have been or what might have been, right? Frankly, as my wife will attest, I, I tend to fail in this way. I tend to, to focus so much on the past on what could have been and what happened and why it happened and, and all the things that, that, that go into that. There are others who focus too much on, too much on past successes. They, they focus on the way things were. They romanticize the past whether you're the former or the latter. We can't let our past cloud our future. 
right? That's the point. We can't, we can't let our past cloud the future. We need to press on, right? Press on for the goal of the prize, of the upward call of Christ. Having said that, we must not forget the old adage. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, right? right? We can't let the past encumber us as we press on toward the finish line, but we cannot forget and make the same mistakes of the past. Kind of a two ways of looking at it, right? Personally, I have memories all the way back to when I was three years old. When I was four, I remember crying myself to sleep because I desperately wanted to, to be 12. I don't know why. I remember that. I wanted to be 12. When, and I, I'm not sure why 12, but I wanted to be 12 with every fiber of my being. Back then, time seemed to go so slowly, but as I've grown older, time has definitely sped up. The years seem to clip off with, a, with stunning rapidity and regularity. They just come like, a, like a sec, the seconds on a clock. It's 2024 now, and it'll be 2025, 2026, and 2027. Some of you know what I mean, right? Many of you may know what I mean. I think it was Al Mohler who said that we should consider our life in ministry not by the year, but by the decade. I think he's, I think he's right. The years fly by too quickly. We can't tell uh, from year to year to year what's happening, but decades come at a much helpful, more helpful rate. You know, it's hard for me to believe that we planted this church seven years ago. Seven years ago. Seven years I've been doing this. I, I, was, I was looking back at Ephesians uh, for the study this morning, and I preached 82 sermons in Ephesians. Can you believe that? 82 sermons in one book. They say time flies when you're having fun. Well, as we approach our anniversary in these next seven years, I thought it would be good to take some time to reflect upon our ministry, to reflect upon it. I felt that it would be helpful to revisit some of the highlights even. We don't do this to fixate on the past, right? That's, that's not the point. But to refocus on the critical aspects of our ministry. We do this looking forward, pressing on to what God has in store for us in the future. We don't look back and reminisce and romanticize. We don't look back with, with bitterness. But we, we press on understanding our past. Right? When I'm running, I understand all that was behind me. I understand all that, but I, don't look, I, dare, not, I dare not become fixated on it. Today we're going to start this process by having a, starting a mini-series in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, I'm not certain how long we'll be in this passage. I'm, I'm actually planning three weeks, but that may not happen. You know me. But we're going to take as long as we need to consider these incredible verses. After that, we're going to briefly revisit a series that I preached on the church several years ago. I preached back then, I think it was 18 or 19 sermons and that. We're going to condense it down to three or four sermons and get the gist of what we learned during that time. Most of you weren't here, so I think it's going to be important to look at that. Uh, During this time, we're going to be reminded why we exist as the body of Christ. And I pray, what my prayer is, is that our Lord will stir up a renewed zeal for ministry, a renewed zeal for, for one another, a renewed zeal for Him as we consider these things. 
And lastly, we're planning our winter retreats, as I said in the announcements. I plan to, in that retreat, take us through the series on the armor of God. And those of you who are in, a, in hermeneutics this morning will understand the importance, of, the strategic importance of doing so. I preached six sermons on that passage back in 2021, but I have felt the need to revisit it considering the context of our times. And I'll condense that down to three or four sermons during the retreat. I, I should also tell you, and I kind of mentioned this uh, in the announcements as well, that we're going to change things a little bit with the retreat this year. We have eliminated the overnight stay and, and the speaker, so we're not going to bring in a speaker from outside. I did, we didn't feel it was wise to spend the church's funds on those things considering our current financial situation, yet we wanted to do something, so we are planning tentatively, that is, to, to meet at, the, the, at Galen. We're working that out, Galen Nursing College, for the teaching on Saturday morning and Saturday evening, along with the church outing on Saturday afternoon at, the, at Memorial Park, and then we'll be back in this building on Sunday. But I think it'll be a great weekend for our church body to come together to cons- consider the spiritual armor. The, these plans, I, I, I hope, all together will help us as we press forward or press toward the upward calling of Christ Jesus our Lord. And for those who want to get back to Matthew, I know that there's, there's those that want to get back to Matthew, don't fret, we will get back there, Lord willing, before you know it. So, I just felt a need, <clears throat> I just felt a need to take a step back and to refocus on our ministry, refocus on our purpose as a church. And truly, I, I just want to get a little personal here. Truly, I've been reflecting on my own ministry and my own life and have personally felt the need to refocus my ministry. Um, I've had conversations with some of you, and, and those conversations have caused great reflection over the past few weeks. Uh, frankly, I've watched some of you uh, wrestle with some of these questions that I hope to answer over the next few weeks, and so I felt the need to revisit and reflect on our purpose, why we exist as Grace Bible Church. I want to give you great confidence in why we exist and why, why, and why you can be confident when you invite someone to come, when you invite someone to be here with us, you can be confident that this is the right thing to do, that we're doing what God would have us do. And a few days ago, my dear wife Angie reminded me of a couple of verses in 2 Peter three seventeen through 18 And those verses, as I considered those verses over the past few days, Those verses have caused me to deeply consider the church and my ministry to you. And really they caused me to take heed of my life and ministry. Um, You know, it's the seven-year mark. And I just really, it just, the Lord has put this on my heart. Let me just read the verses in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We've been through many ups and downs through the first seven years of this ministry. And therefore, I, need to, I felt the need, feel the need to be on guard that we won't fall from our own steadfastness in Paul's words, or in Peter's words. These thoughts began to draw my heart to reflect on this, this letter, especially Peter's opening passage in 2 Peter 1, 
2 through 7. And reading through the letter, as I read through the letter, it gave me an even greater desire to be, be re-fortified, if you will, in ministry for the coming years. To be re-fortified for the next seven years of ministry, if that's what the Lord gives us. I, I've sought the Lord in prayer, and I've decided to take these first few weeks to do just that. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of background as we, as we start this process. And we will begin this process again by using the Apostle Peter's encouragement to the church almost 2,000 years ago. And I, I, prom- I promise you that Peter will help us refocus our hearts on the greatness. I mean, I want us to see the greatness of God's plan for us as individuals, right? But also as a church. And I pray that you'll be patient with me as we work through this process. And you're just going to get a taste of what the Lord has drawn my heart to in, the re- in recent days. So let me... Let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we, I know that was an extended opportunity for me to give my heart to, the, to your people. I do pray that over the next few weeks that, that you would guide me through your Holy Spirit as I study, and as I bring the fruit of my study to, to your people. And I pray that they would find a great encouragement to hear the truths that you reveal to me on the pages of Scripture. I do pray, Lord, for this church, and I pray that you would refortify us, that you would strengthen us. Lord, I pray that you would give us that armor, that we would take up the armor of God so that we would be protected. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read to you from Second Peter chapter 1. We're not really going to get to the passage this morning, but I want to, um, I, I apologize for that. I told you to be patient with me. So, Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in full knowledge of God and Jesus and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the Lord by lust, in the world that is by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. Well now, As I said earlier, you're probably aware, it's January 7th, 2024. We're almost one week into the new year. I hope you haven't already broken those New Year's resolutions. Uh, You know, those things that we we say that we're going to do. Personally, I've found it best not to make resolutions because they tend to reveal my lack of discipline and faithfulness. I certainly wouldn't like... I certainly would like to spend more meaningful time with my wife and my family, yet I know my own self-centeredness. I want to be more faithful spending time with my Lord in prayer, yet I know the obstacle of my self-sufficiency. 
I want to be more regular in Bible study and Scripture memory, but I realize my own laziness. I want to read more, but I know how quickly I lose steam. I want to write more, but I know my flesh soon grows weary. And I even want to exercise more, but I know myself and I know my laziness all too well. Well, obviously, if you can pick up on this, I am the common denominator in all of these struggles. Therefore, I find it easier not making resolutions that I know I'll break. In this way, I'm in awe of Jonathan Edwards. He famously wrote a series of resolutions that he made for his life. There are many of them, but just listen to a couple just to to get a flavor. He writes, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. He writes, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, and yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Such high-flying thoughts that he gives us if you read through those resolutions. Of course, I hope you know that I'm kidding about making resolutions. As you can see from Jonathan Edwards, making them and revisiting them from time to time is helpful as we endeavor to live a productive life that is pleasing to the Lord. And we get the greater benefit of our broken resolutions. They continually point us to the need for God's grace, do they not? Truly, I've, been, I've not been the best at keeping New Year's resolutions. I need the, God's grace as well. Having said that, I have found one highly critical resolution from Scripture that will guide us into the next seven years as individuals and as the church. It's short and sweet, and it's found in 2 Peter chapter 1. Resolved to have a faith that is true and growing. As we approach 2024 and beyond with all the possibilities What we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that the Apostle Peter gives three litmus tests for whether your faith is true and growing. Now, let's start out by looking at the author of 2 Peter. As we begin, we need to consider him. Based on our time, we're not going to get to the outline. You probably have figured that out. I always do my outline prior to the exposition. So I never know how far I'll get when I, until I actually write the sermon. And in a mini-series, though, I wouldn't spend as much time, normally spend as much time considering the author, but I found that Peter's life, and this is what I want you to get, Peter's life demonstrates Paul's teaching from Philippians 3. Okay, And it helps us set up this idea of growing in faith and in, and in, and in love. So, 2 Peter 1.1. The author identifies himself as a man named Simon Peter, who is a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that the Apostle Peter is the one who authored this great epistle. John records Peter's first encounter with the Lord in John chapter 1. His brother Andrew introduced him to the Lord. Andrew told him that they had found the Messiah, the Christ. And when Jesus met him, Jesus looked at him and said... He said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. It has been said that Peter is the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, because his foot was always in his mouth. From the beginning of his time with the Lord Jesus, Peter was one of our Lord's inner circle. 
And in that position, Peter had many opportunities to give input to the Lord. And Scripture does not, absolutely does not pull any punches when describing Peter's character. It seems that he constantly was spouting off without thinking, and he talked a good fight. In the early days, he rarely lived up to those words, though. For example, when, when Jesus began to tell his disciples he would go and be arrested and go to the cross, Peter rebuked him famously in Matthew 16, 22, God forbid it. Lord, this shall never happen to you. But the Lord turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And that is what can be, we can, how we can sum up Peter in his early days. He couldn't back up this promise. Just before Jesus' arrest, as Jesus prayed, he fell asleep in the garden. According to Matthew 26, chapter, or verse 40, at Jesus' trial, Peter even denied him three times. Sadly, Jesus had told him just a few hours earlier, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Tragically, when, Jesus told him, or when, when, when Peter denied him the third time, he became angry and he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you were talking about, and immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. You see, Peter, Peter's response was, was probably a mixture of fear of man and grief over denying his Lord in such a difficult position. After all, he had told Jesus in Matthew 16 that he would never let this happen. Now, Peter did show some semblance of courage at Jesus' arrest in the garden. In John 18, 10, and 11, the Simon Peter, having, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said, put the, put the sword back in the sheath. The cup the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Exactly what, God, what Jesus had promised in Matthew 16 was going to come to pass. Luke tell, doesn't tell us who cut off the ear, but he does tell us that a Jesus immediately said, stop, no more of this, and he touched the ear and healed him. To Peter's credit, he did try to protect the Lord, but he went about it all the wrong way. Again, we see his impetuous nature. In Matthew 16, 24, just after Peter, Peter's declaration that he would not allow Jesus to die, Jesus said to his disciples, including Peter, for whoever wishes uh, to, come to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That verse is tailor-made for Peter. His actions at Jesus' arrest and trial show that he didn't understand what Jesus meant. You see, at that point, at that point, Jesus, or Peter was not ready to lead God's people. And we know that Peter was still around when Jesus was laid in the tomb. We know this because Mary Magdalene ran back to Peter and John after she visited the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away. John tells us that him and Peter went back to the tomb and saw that it was empty. After that, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene near the tomb, according to John chapter 20. Later, he appeared to two of his disciples on two different occasions. We know from Luke that, that Jesus appeared with Peter present. So he was there when Jesus appeared. 
Yet after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Peter went away on a personal pity party. In his mind, he had failed the Lord. Apparently, Peter left Jerusalem and returned to his life as a fisherman in Galilee. You see, for Peter, the show was over. So I want you to turn to John 21. I want you to see this. Turn to John 21. Look down at verse 3 when you get there. John, John 21, 3. It's incredible. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it because of the great number of fish. Now I want you to carefully consider the implications of, of 21.7. I don't want us to read past this verse too quickly. 21.7 Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and cast himself into the sea. Now, you've probably heard many sermons on this passage, and commentators are divided whether Peter and the disciples had abandoned their post by going back to their old job, so he was back fishing, or they were experiencing complete despair, thus a return to their former occupation. Or, if they were in obedience for going to Galilee because the Lord had promised to meet them there. It's hard to to understand and know their mindset at that moment. Uh, Matthew 28.7 tells us that that Jesus would meet them in Galilee, which is where they were back at fishing. Having said that, I find John 21.7 both interesting and confounding. We have to ask some questions of the text. Why does John tell us, so they, the John, or Peter was in the boat, why does John tell us that Peter put on his outer garment? He was, actually, he was actually stripped for work. It seems odd to me that he would put on an outer garment before he swam to the Lord. Would you do that? Would you put on the outer garment before you dive into the water? That's my question. Logically, it's the opposite of what we would expect. Generally, we take off clothing before we get into water because it weighs us down. Also, why does John tell us that he cast himself into the sea? Why doesn't he tell us that Peter dove in and swam directly to the Lord? Why not? Let me offer you an alternative. In the words of, um, of a, a preacher that I love very much, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you an alternative. I can't prove it, but you can't prove me that proves that I'm wrong either. So let me give you an alternative. In Matthew 16, 16, after Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, remember that? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response, Jesus answered him and said this, Blessed are you, 
Simon bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So basically, then he goes on to say that the, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it, but basically this literally means Simon the son of Jonah. So Peter's father's name is Jonah. This is the only time that Peter's ever referred to as Simon bar Jonah. Now I think there is an even greater point than just that he's the son of Jonah for, him, for Jesus referring to him in that way. Matthew 16 is where Jesus asked his disciples the identity of the Son of Man. Who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's what was the question. And they, they said, this is Matthew 16, 13 through 15, they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he says this, this is Jesus. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I, I am? Right? Notice the difference in the question. It was, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now he's saying, who do you say I am? Now, let me just say quickly, he's referring back to, he's referring back to the Old Testament, and he's referring back to the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days out of Daniel 7. He's saying, who do people say that person is? And, they, and some of them say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, some are one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say I am? Meaning that he's the one, he's the Ancient of Days. Right? This is where Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that point he called Peter Simon bar Jonah. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus calls him by that name. The next verse says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me give you the significance of this. You know, that, that whole, what, upon this rock, the, the Catholics say that, you know, Peter's the first pope and all of that. That's not what's going on. I can tell you, let me just cut to the chase, that what, what that rock is, is the confession that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. That that's what's going to be, that's the, con, the confession is what, what the church is going to be built on. That you and I, as His people, are declaring and teaching that He is the Son of God. Okay? That's, that's, a, quick, that's a quick answer. Okay? Now, let me give you the significance of this. You may recall another man by the name of Jonah in Scripture. Remember, remember him? He was a defiant prophet who was sent to the Ninevites. Remember that? You may recall that when God sent him, Jonah, the, Jonah from the Old Testament, disobediently went the other way fleeing from Yahweh. You may also recollect that he went to a place called Joppa. And he went, got on a ship that was going to Tarshish. He was, he was literally going the opposite direction of what God, God had called him to do. God had called him to go to the Ninevites. He literally was going the other direction. Okay? We see that in Jonah chapter 1, verses three, verse 3. Yet Jonah rose to, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. That's very important. From the presence of Yahweh. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, do you remember the most famous part of Jonah's story? God hurled this great wind and there was a great storm on the sea. That's Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. And the ship 
The ship thought that it was breaking apart. I mean, that's what literally the Scripture says. The, the ship thought it was breaking apart. And Jonah was asleep, right? Remember that? He was asleep. And, but the captain woke him up, and, and, and Jonah said in Jonah 1.12, remember that? The, the, the captain said, what's going on? And, and it ended up being because Jonah was running from God, and, and the captain was, had, had he told him he was stupid. and Yeah, he didn't say stupid. You know what I'm saying. But Jonah 1.12 Jonah said to the captain, lift me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become quiet for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Ultimately, they lifted Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea and the sea stood still from its raging. Now, I don't have time to completely exposit Jonah. If you want to go back and listen to my sermons on Jonah, you can do that. But I want want you to see two main things. Do you remember... In Jonah chapter 2, that Jonah went down to the bottom of the sea. Do you remember that? He was near death at the bottom of the sea when he called out to Yahweh. In Jonah 2.2, it says, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me, and I cried from the belly of Sheol, you heard my, I cried for help from the belly of Sheol, and you heard my voice. At that point, God sent a fish which saved Jonah and ultimately vomited him on dry land. So here's the first significance that I want you to see. I believe that Simon Bar-Jonah was at his lowest point when Jesus appeared to him at the Sea of Galilee. And I think just like Jonah, who had gotten up and went opposite and ran away from the presence of Yahweh, what did Peter do? Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. He was trying to run from the Lord. But I also think like Jonah, Jesus had a great plan for Peter. Jesus was not done with him. Back in John 21, verses 15 through 17, Jesus came to him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and charged him to tend to sheep. Very famous passage there where he tells him three different times. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, by the way, John, Jonah, it's, it's a... It's, it's parallel. But the point is, is that, do you love me? Then he says, shepherd my sheep. And he, he says that three different times. Do you love me? Peter was grieved and said the third time, when he said the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. What, what's happening there is this, this meant that Jesus would use Simon bar Jonah, Peter, to build his church, to lead and shepherd his church. So despite all of Peter's failures, Jesus gave Peter and those with him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do you all see that? And that's what this is the commission right here on the beach. Now this promise came to fruition at Pentecost when Peter took his stand in Jerusalem declaring the birth of the New Testament church. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And then he goes on and he speaks through the prophet Joel. You see, Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, had finally become all that the Lord had intended for him. He would go on to be the leader and pillar of the New Testament church in her early years. Now let me give you one other parallel with the story of Jonah if you're not convinced that there is a parallel. You may recall that 
that God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Who were the Ninevites? They were Jewish. No, right? No, they were Gentile, right? Okay, they were Gentile nation. Jonah didn't want God to save them. As a matter of fact, he got ticked off because God was going to save them because his own nation, Israel, this is Jonah's own nation, Israel was under judgment. So Jonah was ticked. He was like, I don't like this because Jonah knew that God is a gracious and compassionate God. This is Jonah 4.2. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning evil. Yet at that very moment, Jonah knew that Israel was under judgment. And he, also, he, he knew that, that God would judge Israel and offer salvation to the Gentiles. Ironically, this is ironically, Jonah was the conduit by which God saved the Gentile Ninevites. Okay, get that. Now there would be a second disobedient Jonah who would be sent to the Gentiles after his own people had rejected God. Do y'all not see how incredible that is? After Jesus had dealt with Peter, after he was restored, God would send him to the Gentiles in a place called Joppa. Acts chapter 10. Peter would go to a place called Joppa. Again, do you not see the, t- the, the parallel? He'd send him to Gentiles in a place called Joppa. That's even a greater parallel. God would later use Peter to write two epistles. We know them as the first and second Peter. He was also the close companion of Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark used Peter's recollections to write his Gospel account. But let me just say this, along with Paul, Peter was the bridge Jesus would use to take the Gospel to the Gentiles. What an incredible Incredible truth that is. Now let me, get, let me give you the significance. You might, you might be going, what are you doing? You're talking about the church here, and you're talking about Peter. And Let me give you the significance. We'll get into 2 Peter 1 next week, but I wanted to help you see how all this fits in our context, fits our context in the church today, and how it applies to Grace Bible Church. First and most importantly, all that Peter had been through Jesus had literally taken him to his lowest point. I, I, I would argue that when Jesus appeared to him at that boat, on that, at the shore, when he was on the boat, that it was literally his lowest point. Literally. When it came time for him to take his stand at Pentecost, Peter had become all that Jesus intended him to be. At that very moment, Peter's life clearly illustrated Paul's exhortation that we started with in the beginning, right? Remember that? Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Peter, when it came time, when it came time to stand and preach, he pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, did he not? What an incredible testimony of a man who was faithful. He forgot what lied behind, and he reached forward to what lies ahead, and he pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Church, this is 2024. As a church, we have seven years under our belt. Seven years. And we stand on the precipice of our next seven years. We must not get distracted by romanticizing the past. We must not get distracted by our past failures. Our past failures or even our past successes. As I said earlier, we can't change the past. We must reflect upon it. We must learn from it, but we can't change it. Our past cannot be changed. And let me tell you something, it has absolutely no bearing on the present or the future. We are like a runner bearing down on the finish line. We dare not look back because that's what takes our eyes off the prize. Just like Peter, we have had missteps. We have lost momentum. We have had critical people move on to other places and do other things. But here's the point. Here at Grace Bible Church, we need to resolve to stay steadfast and faithful. We have to resolve to grow in faith and in love. And I'm convinced that as we pick up next week in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm convinced this is where Peter, with all his wisdom, can y'all not see how much wisdom this man has as he stands at the end of his life, as he, as he looks back in the right way, as he looks back and he tells us what we need to be doing. That is the incredible wisdom that we're about to be treated to next week. So with that, with that, let's pray. And we'll turn our hearts to... Spend some time reflecting on the Lord's table. Our gracious Lord, as we come to you this morning, as you know, my heart has been heavy. I've reflected. I've brought to memory, brought to mind our past seven years. And oh, there have been many triumphs, and yet there have been failures and difficulties and problems. But Lord, as we stand on the precipice of another seven years, or 14, or 21, or whatever it is, Lord, as we stand on the precipice looking forward, pressing on, Lord, may we not be encumbered by the past. May we not look back in a way that would distract us from what we're really going after. May we press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. Lord, as we consider the past, and as we consider where we've come from, may it be to rekindle our love for You and our faith in You. May You use this time in the next few weeks in the life of this church to rekindle, rekindle not past successes, but rekindle a heart for You. Lord, we love You, and we praise You, and we ask that now as we turn our hearts to communion, to the Lord's table, that we would Again, look at the past, what you promised in the past, but understand that those promises will come to fruition in the future.
In Christ's name, amen.